Jesus says, if you knew who I was and you asked me for what I can offer, I would give you living water. Water that if you took it, you would never thirst again. And in John 7, he explains it even more. And he says he's talking about the Holy Spirit, which is water that wells up to eternal life. Do you see the language here? God's new temple would be his glory. And Jesus is, his body is that temple. And out of that temple flows rivers of living water. And it's Christ who gives God's Holy Spirit. All that sounds great. But then we find at the end of the gospel, Jesus has to leave. And we think, oh, something's wrong here. No, nothing's wrong here. Because even though Jesus has to go so the Spirit can come, his body, his temple, is still here. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Have you ever watched one of those late night infomercials? Can't sleep, kind of see what's out there, and you're, you know, you're, you're half awake, and so your reasoning powers aren't quite what they usually are. And that's when you see the Ginsu knife and you think to yourself, I need something that can cut through a shoe. Or, you know, you're watching and you see that exercise bike and you forget about the two you've bought before in your life that have now become coat racks. And you say, I need another one. Infomercials are great at trying to sell you something. And the first thing they do is they try to tell you you really need it, that you didn't know you needed it before. And then they tell you why once they know that you need it, there's nothing else like it. And you can't find it at any better price than you can get it right now. And before you know it, all the world is a crisis and this is the solution. If you watch long enough, you'll find an answer for everything that's ever ailed you. Someone somewhere has figured out a way to fix it. You don't really spend too much time thinking about, you know, if that really did work as well as you say it worked, you'd probably have a Nobel Prize. But instead, you're on late-night infomercials for $49.95. Think I'll try it. We choose some of these things out of curiosity or even desperation. And what's sad is when the real elixir, the real medicine, the real thing that we need is actually available and we bypass that for the sham that looks good. I want you to kind of keep that in mind as we kind of think about Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesies that God's spirit is abandoning the temple. I want you to think about what a serious thing this is. It's so bad because the Spirit leaving means the presence of God is leaving. And if the presence of God is leaving, it means your connection to life is leaving. All that's left is death and misery if the Spirit of God leaves. And Ezekiel knows firsthand what that might feel like to feel away from the presence of God. You see, about a decade before the fall of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar began to flex his muscles and he comes in and he looks at the king and he says, "Uh, I think you're coming with me. That's Jehoiachin. He takes him and he grabs, oh, about 10,000 people and he brings them home with him. 
It's a decade before the fall of Jerusalem. And one of the young men he takes is a priest in training named Ezekiel. He's 25 years old. The old prophet Jeremiah is still in the city of Jerusalem. He's giving his grave warnings, and the young Ezekiel is in Babylon among the exiles, and he's about to do his own calling. About five years after he was captured, now he's around 30, Ezekiel is visited by God by a canal in Babylon. And there God calls Ezekiel to be a prophet. Now, Ezekiel began to prophesy that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Judah is going to fall, and all this is going to happen in 586 B.C. The writing's on the wall, so to speak, to borrow from a different prophet. There were false prophets all around, and they were saying, Jerusalem will never fall. We're headed home any day now. And Ezekiel knew that wasn't true. In fact, he knew it was going to happen in about five years. And so this is his job. So in Ezekiel 4 and 5, Ezekiel lies on his side. He does it for a year and a half. And he besieges a clay model of the city of Jerusalem. And it's meant to imply Jerusalem's going to get destroyed. And what do the people do? Well, they start hearing rumblings and rumors about this. And some of them in the city go to the temple. And they pray and they ask their gods for help. The problem is, they're not asking Yahweh for help. They're asking false gods that they have set up in the temple. Clear example of what's wrong. They're looking for the source of healing. But the real source of healing is right there, but they're bypassing him for all the sham elixirs that they've convinced themselves are the better answer. And that's chapter 8 of Ezekiel. And so only death and destruction await them. The glory's gone. Jerusalem falls. Now, there are a couple of possible responses you can have when something like this happens, when there's such a terrible calamity in your life or in your city or in your nation, and something like this is a big deal, a couple of responses you can have. One, you can get really angry and mad at God and then forget him. You can say God has abandoned us. He never answered our plea for help. I'm going to go back to my pagan practices to use language from, uh, from Exodus. It's better for us to go back in Egypt than it is to be out here with this God. Jeremiah has to deal with that in Jeremiah chapter 44. That's one option. Another is you can say, yes, God really did send this judgment. But it's so vicious. I don't want to go into it right now, especially with all the different ages here. But look up what happened to the women and the children when Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 586. Yeah, God sent this judgment, but it's so cruel. What does that tell us about God? Does God even care? What am I supposed to do with this? Lamentations deals with that one, at least the first couple chapters. It ends by saying, this is not the end, and it shouldn't make us think that at the end, God is anything other than steadfast love, but it's not an easy one to figure out. A third option, you can say, well, okay, God sent the judgment, but if God can do that to his people, 
I'm just waiting for him to do the same thing to his enemies. All right, God, I can see how vicious you can be. There are the bad guys. Get them. You get that in the Psalms. Psalm 137 is a prayer that God will do to Edom and God will do to Babylon. What's happening to the children in Jerusalem? A fourth option. If God is doing this, it's unfair. You're making me suffer for what my parents and their parents did. You know, this language about God uh, is storing up what the parents and grandparents did, and now I'm going to bring it on you. And the argument there is, don't blame me for what my grandparents did. Ezekiel has to deal with that one in chapter 18 and in chapter 33. And in both cases, Ezekiel says, okay, I actually want you to understand that God was patient in the days of your parents and grandparents. But you're not innocent. The fact that he was patient with them speaks to his mercy. The fact that he's bringing judgment on you speaks to his justice. They're both good things about God. And then you could say, well, it's God's doing. We deserved it. God's left. And that means there's no covenant anymore. And that means there's no hope. No spirit of God. Well, then I might as well just quit living. Might as well be dead bones in a grave. That's actually what some of the people say in Ezekiel 37 and verse 11. We might as well be dead bones in a grave. A true and full understanding of how God operates is that God's judgment is both logical, meaning he speaks about it in Deuteronomy, and limited. Any loving parent will understand this. When you set house rules, and you set them because you care about your children, and your kids test the line, and you enforce the consequences, you're doing it because you love them. And when they really test the outer limits of the house rules, and you enforce the extreme measures of the house rules, you do it because you love them. You're teaching them something. You're warning them. You think this difficulty now is actually better for you than an even worse difficulty later. There's logic. But there's also limitation. God does not, has not, will not abandon his children. And so a full understanding of this is that God laid out a covenant plan. They have so disregarded it. They've made life miserable for themselves and everyone around them. If they keep doing this, their children's children's children will be even worse. And the nations will never know who the true God is. Something has to change. But judgment is never God's last word. And so from Ezekiel 34 To 48, there is messages of hope, hope, hope. God's grace is on full display here. I learned these definitions I want to give you now from a 
a preacher named Joe Beam. I think it was 20 years ago. And I like this definition. I want you to think about it. He said, mercy, mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. You got that? Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. Okay, let's try those out for a second. You're driving down the road. You've never been through this city before. You're trying to find a shortcut. Speed limit says 45, so you go 70, of course, and you get caught. You plead, 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 plead. You put on your sad face. You, you do everything you can think of. You, you, go, you go looking through your uh, glove compartment, and you're hoping that they'll see the little badge that uh, represents when you used to work for the highway department, and you're trying to pull that out there. You do everything you can. And the cop says, you have broken the rules, you've broken the law, you've endangered people, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you off with a warning. You know what that is? Mercy. Now suppose that instead of you not getting what you do deserve, the officer said, today's your lucky day. You're the 100th person I've caught in my speed trap. And the 100th person gets the keys to the city and a parade in your honor. Now we're talking about grace. I want you to understand what's going to happen in Ezekiel. It would be enough for God to let his people live. But there's more. It would be even better for him to let his people return to the land and to be a people once again. But God says, I can even do better. Ezekiel 34. I'm going to restore the kingdom of David. And I'm going to let David be the prince over them. Now, who do you think he's talking about there? Ezekiel 36. I'm going to bring security to the land. And I'm going to cleanse Israel of all their sin and of all their shame. It's going to be a complete cleansing. Ezekiel 37, I'm going to bring the whole nation back like a resurrection. And I'm going to reunify my people. We've got the valley, the famous valley of dry bones. And all the bones are sitting there in the, in the grave. And Ezekiel says, can, can dry bones live? And God says, watch this. And a strong wind comes by, the wind, the breath of God. And it brings all the muscles back onto the dry, dead bones. And he says, this is a symbol. I'm going to bring my people back. Ezekiel 38 and 39, I'm going to destroy all of God's enemies and everyone that's ever been an enemy of God's people. And then in chapters 40 through 48, he describes the restoration of worship to God in a revitalized land and a new restored temple with God fully present at all times with his people. The imagery is of resurrection, restoration, a new place, a place described in chapters 34 through 48 with plenty of fish and animals, a place with fruit trees that bear all the fruit you want, 
He's trying to describe, you know, your, your, your dream. Anybody here love hunting and fishing and camping? Okay. He's trying to say, I'm going to give you everything you could possibly imagine and more. I mean, it's going to feel like the first scene of Mayberry, you know, of Andy Griffith, you know, when they're throwing the rock into the water and uh, goes out there to fish. And apparently you can do that whenever you want to. And that's a whole day's worth of uh, that's what it's going to be like. He says, it's going to be everything you can imagine. It's all the language that reminds you of the Garden of Eden. And in the center of this new restored place, Ezekiel says, is going to be a temple. A new restored temple. And out of this new temple, where God dwells, take a look at chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. Right out of the temple where God dwells, where his glory is, is going to flow a life-giving, life-healing river. Rivers of living water. And the name of the city, Ezekiel 48, verse 35, is the Lord is there. I can't help but see the gospel in Ezekiel. I see the worst of humanity in the first few chapters. The darkness. Remember Romans, the first three chapters, Paul says in Romans, let me explain the gospel. Let me begin by telling you this. Gentiles are awful. Chapter two, all the moralizers are awful. Chapter three, if you're left, I haven't mentioned to you, you're awful. There is none righteous, no, not one. The darkness of humanity is obvious. But light shines brightest against a dark backdrop. We've made a mess of things, gone after all the wrong things. But healing is coming. Salvation is coming. And what we're going to get is better than we could possibly imagine. 600 years after Ezekiel writes, God comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And the book that I think explains Ezekiel's fulfillment the best is the Gospel of John. In the opening scenes, we're told that the Word became flesh. And the Bible says in verse 14, He dwelt among us. But the Greek word there for dwelt among us is a word that conjures up the imagery of the skin that would go around uh, the tent pegs to make the tabernacle. You could, you could translate it, he tabernacled among us. God put on skin, and we met God in the person of Jesus Christ. And to make it clear that that's what we're talking about, in chapter 2, Jesus makes it abundantly clear when he says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And John says, you know he wasn't talking about bricks and mortar. He was talking about his body. God's glory dwelling in the skin of the tabernacle and God's glory dwelling in the temple, which is his body. And then in chapter four, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman by a well. We've already got the language of body and temple and glory, and we're waiting for those life-giving waters flowing out of the temple. And in John four, 
Jesus says, if you knew who I was and you asked me for what I can offer, I would give you living water. Water that if you took it, you would never thirst again. And in John 7, he explains it even more. And he says he's talking about the Holy Spirit, which is water that wells up to eternal life. Do you see the language here? God's new temple would be his glory. And Jesus is, his body is that temple. And out of that temple flows rivers of living water, and it's Christ who gives God's Holy Spirit. All that sounds great, but then we find at the end of the gospel, Jesus has to leave. And we think, ooh, something's wrong here. No, nothing's wrong here. Because even though Jesus has to go so the Spirit can come, his body, his temple, is still here. Full of God's Holy Spirit. The body of Christ continues to be the temple of God. We see his presence here. We see his spirit here. And the glory shines here. The question that Ezekiel was asking and the question the New Testament asks is, will we accept God's presence in God's temple and the life-giving waters that flow from it? Or will we reject God's presence and reject God's temple and end up becoming a valley full of dry, dead bones? Jesus is the source of life. And all who acknowledge that, according to John 6 and verse 47, pass from death to life and participate in that new life. And so after the Gospels, we have language by Paul about how that's still true in God's church. Look in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The body of Jesus is still here. The temple is still here for the spirit of God dwells in the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. He continues to build his new temple. One Christian at a time. And the name of the city is the Lord is there. What did Jesus say at the end of the gospel of Matthew? I will be with you always. What did he say when he was talking to people gathering where two or three are gathered in my name? I will be with them. We've already died. We admitted that we were a valley of dry, dead bones. And when we died, we allowed his spirit to rejuvenate us. 
And that's why Colossians 3 says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Does your focus enrich your life or does it deplete it? When you go looking for life, meaning, hope, are you looking at all these things that have glitz and glamour that are being put in front of us that are actually shams? Or do we go straight to the source and realize the longing that we feel deep within our heart is only going to be supplied by the life-giving water that flows from the throne of God? Only Christ can mend your broken heart. If you're struggling in your marriages, only Christ can mend a broken relationship. If you're struggling with sinful addictions, only Christ can mend a broken life. If you believe it, if you trust it, what Christ is willing to do with you and through you is more than you could possibly imagine. And that's why after saying those words, Paul says in Ephesians to him, be glory. And it's the language where normally in the Old Testament, you'd say in the temple. But this time he says to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.